Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The unemployment issue just keeps coming back with politicians trying to force the unemployed back to work. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Jane Cahoon. You guys all already hot today. I think it's already near 80. <laughs> it's too hot. And we record this before the sun comes up. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's like begin. It. Why is Senator Rob Portman doubling down on his move to force unemployed people back to work by taking away the $300 the federal government has provided an extra assistance? Laura Johnston, he's one of the politicians, just, just doesn't seem to take into consideration the feelings or needs of his constituents. It's all about the employers. Employers, 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 they need workers. We're going to squeeze the workers until they finally show up back at the workplace. What's his latest set of moves? Yeah, so he wrote an op-ed in Barron's, and he basically names some employers, some businesses in Ohio, he said, have had to shut down or shut their doors at least one day a week because they can't find workers. And, you know, obviously Portman believes in this. He's not pandering. He's not running for re-election. And so he he thinks that the federal government should stop their payments, not just state by state. Apparently, there's close to half the states in this country that have already ended the federal unemployment extra $300 a week. So his his view is that our country is at a crossroads. We're stagnating and hurting working families by paying people to stay home. But you're right. Nowhere in this op-ed, and it, it's, it's not long, does he talk about what it must be like to receive that unemployment and, and have to deal with the issue of facing COVID or finding childcare or caring for an elderly relative that might be stopping these people from working? Well, you know, Leila Tassi has been on a run talking about how 11-year-olds and under can't be vaccinated and the fear that that puts into parents who are sending them out into the world or deciding not to. One of the reasons some parents aren't going back to work is they're worried about their children getting COVID, yet nowhere does Rob Portman even acknowledge it. What is it going to take for his children to have a kid that young for him to think about it? Because it seems like the only way he changes his position is if it happens to his own family. Yeah, I, I don't know what it would take for Portman to change his position, but I don't think this is a black and white issue where you're like, stop the unemployment, go back to work. Because obviously we talked about the story yesterday Pete Krause did about what this is going to do to the economy. But also, you know, I, I believe that we should be stopping and pausing and rethinking this rather than just saying everybody back to normal, like hurry up, COVID's over, go, go work. But it isn't just the McDonald's dining room, right? It isn't just corporations that are squeezing. I did get an email 
rather thoughtful from a business owner um, this yesterday who talked about how <laughs> I used the, the phrase minimum wage when I wrote about this last. And he's like, no one is paying minimum wage, which is actually something like seven seventy-five an hour federally. And I think eight 70 an hour in Ohio. So I could be off in those numbers, but they're much lower than the, the now, you know, now hiring signs you're seeing. So there is something wrong with this picture. If, you know, the employers want to pay $11 an hour or whatever, they say they can't pay anymore. They won't be making any more money. Maybe we as consumers need to say, okay, maybe we don't need to pay $5 for a pizza. Maybe we can pay $7 for a pizza so that we can all have a better life. Well, the, the the sad thing I find about this is the absolutist nature of the conversation, mm-hmm. that there is no acknowledgement that there's another side to this. John Houston, Mike DeWine, Rob Portman, it, they've loaded up their bazookas with get back to work, get back to work. Inherent in that, in that argument is you lazy slob who mm-hmm. won't go back to work without any acknowledgement of the things we're talking about here. This is Leila Tassi. Can I jump in? If you read this, if you read this op-ed through the opposite lens of what Portman intended, you could actually convince yourself that he's ramping up for an argument about paying workers more so unemployment isn't the more attractive alternative. You know, he says things like, all this is to say our country finds itself at a crossroads. We can stagnate and hurt working families or we can get people back to work and create robust and sustained economic growth. Yeah, we sure can, Rob Portman, (laughs) by paying people more. He says, like, already some businesses like Geordie's in Columbus and Dale's Diner are closing because they can't find workers and others are being forced to close one day a week because they're understaffed. And then it says facing no alternative. Other businesses are figuring out ways to move forward with fewer employees facing no alternative. How about paying people more? I mean, there are alternatives to this. This is how dare this guy suggest that this is being done to protect and uplift working families. That is just gross. And we just don't seem to be having that state of debate. Like, I, I maybe I'm missing it, Jane Cahoon, but I don't see Sherrod Brown and Tim Ryan standing up to this onslaught on the three hundred dollars saying, wait, wait, point. there's more to be done here. This isn't the black and white issue you guys are trying to make this. Let's have a real discussion. It seems like the only place we're having this discussion is on this podcast. <laughs> well, I think they have weighed in on that issue. I would have to go back to their all their statement, various statements and so forth. This, I don't think they've ignored it by any means. But but you're right, Chris. You know, I think Rob Portman does present this almost like a black and white argument. And there are so many shades of gray, you know, as you referenced Pete Krause's story over the weekend you know, where studies, this new study shows that there are lots of reasons why, you know, factors that play into someone's decision about whether they go back to work, like childcare, like safety. So it's, it's so nuanced, but, you know, I think, as you said, the Rob Portmans, the Mike DeWines, the John Husteds, you know, they all see it as black and white. And the, the sad implication is that, yeah, you lazy slobs, you know, Right. Well, oh, and- but he he couches it as, you know, we need to encourage more people to safely get back to building careers and achieving the the American dream. That is actually what and I don't what? think the jobs they're offering are career building. In no. General. 
Well, it's capitalism, right? There's supply and demand. The easiest way to fix this, pay more money. That's You want people to come back to work? Give them a... a I'm just saying a, that we are talking about some small businesses here, and I do... Like, I do think we need to talk about the plight of the small business in this discussion because you're right, it's not black and white. But that means that we have to be willing as consumers to take on some of that burden. If, if you know, small business people are telling us if I raise rates by a dollar, it's going to cost me 20 grand. Like, we don't want those people to go out of business either. They're not all millionaires. So let's talk about how we can all support that. Okay. On the other hand, You're... though, if if we look at places where they've raised the minimum wage to $15, all the gloom and doom that was predicted by these small business owners never came to pass. They're doing fine. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is an Ohio legislator in such a rush to get a bill passed letting Ohio college athletes make money off their names and images? Jane Cahoon, this has been something that's just not been thinkable for decades and decades, and suddenly we're on the cusp of it. It's a pretty big deal. Well, we're, we are on the cusp of it, but yet things are, are stalling on some fronts. Anyway, you're talking about Republican State Senator Naraj Antani who's trying to get this legislation passed to beat a July 1st deadline. That's when similar laws in, in five other states take effect. So if this bill doesn't get passed or if Congress or the NCAA don't come up with a nationwide solution to this, you could you could have a situation where Ohio's Division I programs, can you say Ohio State? would be at a competitive disadvantage. So athletes in places like Alabama, Florida, Georgia, which have football powerhouses, as we know, and they have these laws set to take effect. So so athletes there could start making money where athletes in Ohio could not. But, you know, and I guess Texas, uh, it has a, a law under consideration and, you know, other states are, are also, you know, taking action. On this, I should mention that as far as a nationwide solution, uh, one of Ohio's Congress members, Republican Anthony Gonzalez, who happens to be a former OSU and professional football star, has been really out front on this issue for a while, trying, you know, for this very reason, so that all the good athletes don't leave for just the states that allow this, that allow them to make money. But um, he said recently that he's kind of skeptical that 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 is going to pass by the end of the year in in Congress. So I guess Antani's bill is kind of like an insurance policy. You know, if the NCAA or or Congress doesn't uh, doesn't act, he said he's he he went to Ohio State and he so the issue he's had an interest in this issue and he's working he's been working with Ohio State. The athletic director accompanied him at his news news conference uh, yesterday. And I guess the NCAA is supposed to do something during its June 22nd, 23rd meeting. But, you know, we we just don't know that for sure. Well, the, a couple of things. You take away Ohio State's competitiveness and the whole state will go into revolt because it's, you know, Ohio State. But But does this set up a really unholy situation where Ohio State and Florida and Alabama will start working deals with sponsors to generate money to pay to the players. Like, you know, Coke is based in Atlanta, so they're going to go to the University of Georgia and say, hey, look, we'll, you know, we'll, whoever you get, we'll take care of them so that you build this very silly competition to compensate players that it's out of line. Is there any limit on this? 
Yeah, I mean, I I think that's why they need something federal here to so that everybody's playing by the same rules. Yeah, it's a frightening thing. Ohio State would do well in that world because it's got that massive alumni association, but but say goodbye to some lesser schools if that uh, that happens. You do need to have the level playing field. You're listening to This Week in This CLE. How many jobs might be involved in the decision by Peloton, the fitness tech company, to build its first U.S. manufacturing plant near Toledo? Leila Tassi, this was a surprise. Ohio beating out a whole bunch of other states for this cool tech company and modern manufacturing. Came out of nowhere. I think all of us were shocked. Yeah, it's super, super cool. Peloton announced on Monday that the company is going to spend $400 million to bring its first U.S. production factory to Ohio. It'll be a 200-acre campus with more than a million square feet of manufacturing and office space. And we're talking about 2,000 jobs potentially to the region, including management, executive, and entry-level positions. And according to the governor's office, that's about $138 million in annual payroll uh, the company expects to break ground later this summer on on it. It's called the Peloton Output Park. It's going to be in Troy Township near Toledo. And the plant will produce the Peloton Bike, Bike Plus. Is that what it's called? Bike Plus? And yeah, Peloton Tread. Version. Oh, okay. Yeah. And Peloton Tread. Um, the, the Ohio Tax Credit Authority approved a 2.3% tax credit covering 15 years of the facility worth more than $47 million. So um, some perks. And what's interesting about this is that the company has strategically decided it needed more onshore manufacturing after the pandemic really forced a lot of industries into this position of being unable to meet demand when supply chains were drying up. And, you know, I mean, I'm coming from the perspective of a mom who couldn't find a kid's bike anywhere last summer to save my life. So I think more companies should follow Peloton's lead here and establish production facilities here in the U.S. or better yet, here in Ohio. <laughs> well, the, the, there's several things that surprise me about it. They sent a note out to their Ohio customers that said, hey, there, there was intense competition and we picked your state. Uh, mm-hmm. Which you had to think there had to be intense competition. Who, what state wouldn't want a modern manufacturing facility that with a cool tech company? I mean, everybody wants this kind of thing. Um, but but they did, I think, lose a lot of sales last year because they couldn't provide the bikes. They were relying right. on overseas production. They weren't coming in. And and what it sets up, and we got Pete Kraus working on a story about this. Is this the future? Are a whole lot of companies, because we've done, Laura Johnson, how many stories on furniture companies and everybody (laughs) else that cannot get supplies? Does this set up a competition in America to bring all man or a lot of manufacturing back to our own shores? And is Ohio well placed? I mean, we obviously won this, so that speaks well to what Ohio's competitiveness is. Which is interesting because, like, do you remember all the hubbub about who was going to get the Amazon distribution or whatever the Amazon? Oh yeah, thing was and and every every city wanted it and was super public except for Cleveland about like how they were going to get it and this just like came out of the blue. I mean, it wasn't like Peloton was making us go through a reality show of who wants the next Peloton factory. <laughs> it, it's just kind of like good news that landed in our lap. So um, yeah, I, I'd love to know what they were looking at and what they got offered. And well, we're working we, on that, aren't we? we got yeah, we all. are. And, yeah. and look, we have a, a great transportation hub system here. The interstates run through here. We have the unlimited supply of, of fresh water that a lot of states can't compete with. Uh, and it seems like with Jobs Ohio and some of the other things the government does, it's become much more receptive 
but it's just, a, it's a big deal. And I, I can't wait to learn more about how Ohio pulled this, this one off, because if it's the beginning of a trend, uh, it could be a very good one for Ohio. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did Susan Glazer find out when she asked a bunch of experts about a $2 billion pie-in-the-sky proposal to remake Cleveland Hopkins International Airport? Laura Johnston, we kind of found the whole idea of this preposterous because nobody has $2 billion, but the people Susan talked to were more optimistic. Yeah, they're not really questioning the need for it, but they we haven't found the one leader who seems to be taking the lead of championing it either. So there's initial support from the city and business leaders. There's no guarantee that this project is going to be implemented as proposed. There are concerns and we've raised them about how this is going to cost the airline so much money that they raise fares or they scale back service. And there is absolutely no guarantee, even from the biggest proponents of this plan, that this is going to bring Cleveland travelers what they want most, which is more flights to more places and more direct flights. So even the vice president of this consulting company that worked on the plan told Susan, there's no connection between a nice airport and more service to that airport, which makes you think, what is the point of this all again for $2 billion? I think the point of this is that they're required to do it by the FAA to have a master plan that it has to follow a series of steps. They've done that. They've come up with their final plan. And my bet is, despite what they say, this now goes on the shelf because there is absolutely no will by the airlines to pay for this. And that's the only way it can happen. If you turn to the airlines and say, we want you to pay for this, they're all going to say, see ya. We'll fly out of Pittsburgh, Detroit, Columbus, and every airport but you, even Akron, Canton. So I, I have a feeling that we will stop talking about this in the very near future, like right now, and probably never discuss it again. Some of the leaders that Susan talked to basically said, you know, companies are not, like airlines are not going to leave because of high employment costs, which is the cost per, per per passenger to park your plane at that airport, which apparently ours are already $14.07 compared to about $8 in Columbus and 1050 in Pittsburgh, which is like, why? Why are we so expensive? But um, Spirit is the only one who's really said publicly that they want to examine the potential price tag. Think about it, though. Why why would you stay if you had to jack up your ticket prices so high they became non-competitive? I mean, think about it. When Akron Canton had cheap flights, people were heading to Akron Canton for their flights. If you're flying to Europe, and you can save a thousand bucks on your ticket by going to Columbus or anywhere else you're going to. I, 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 I don't, I just don't buy it. The landing fees are what make airports competitive and ours already are high. They would become astronomical with a $2 billion debt service to pay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How many people registered for the Vaximilian cash and scholarship drawings and what are some things that put the odds of winning into perspective? Jane Cahoon, this is the talker story of Ohio this <laughs> month. Everybody wants to talk about Maximilian. Let's dive in. Yes, Mike DeWine's getting more of his uh, earned media here. But anyway, we had more than 2.7 million adults sign up for, for this million-dollar prize, and more than 104,000 young people entered the drawing for the the full college scholarship. The lottery actually drew the winners late yesterday after they eliminated duplicate entries, but we, we're not going to know until Wednesday night who the five, who, I'm sorry, who the winners are because they need to verify that they've been vaccinated and that they're Ohio residents and so forth. So 
I guess, you know, if you haven't heard anything yet, you probably, <laughs> you probably <laughs> didn't win that first drawing. But as far as the odds that you asked about for this first million dollar drawing, they are one in 2,758,470. And those number of people will stand a 551,694 to one chance of winning one of the five drawings. And those odds are going to get worse because people can still sign up for the subsequent drawings. So you're so, saying there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because it's still significantly better than the uh, Ohio Lottery's, you know, standard games like like the classic lotto jackpot, which is like for for Monday afternoon anyway it was like a 1 in 14 million shot so so this is a lot better than that but um anyway just for fun Pete Kraus and with the help of a Baldwin Wallace University professor and some other research he he looked at the odds for some other like so-called unlikely occurrences so for instance if you know there's buried treasure somewhere in Ohio but have no idea where to start looking the chances of you picking the right square mile to search are one in 44,825. So he's got things like that in this story. Like, you know, it's <laughs> this is a uh, bummer. <laughs> one, the odds are one in 10 million that, that someone will become president of the United States. Uh, double that, one in 20 million to become a saint. Uh, you know, things like the chances of being struck by lightning in a given year, it's a little more than one in 1.2 million, but it's only one in 15,300 over a person's 80-year lifespan. So, or like if uh, you're afraid of being scalded to death by hot tap water, that's one <laughs> in 5 million. Anyway, he's got a couple other kind of fun ones. You know, you know what I take some solace in? In if 2.7 million people registered for this, but 5.8 million people in Ohio voted last November. I would have thought that the the attraction of the million bucks would would turn that around. But actually, it was good to know <laughs> that about half as many registered for this as voted. Of course, there's no ballot drop boxes for Vaximillion. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did a judge summarily shut down a weeks-long homicide trial and send the jurors home, meaning the whole thing has to start anew? Leila Tassi, this is a gigantic waste of taxpayer money. (laughs) Really, somebody's head has to roll for this. Uh, And it's unclear how this even happened. So it turns out that the jurors in this case were mistakenly sent into deliberation with copies of prosecutors' legal briefs among the evidence that they're supposed to consider. This is the trial of a U.S. Army soldier charged with murder in a 2018 New Year's Eve party shooting that left three men dead. And the defendant also happens to be Tevin Biles Thomas, who's the brother of the world's greatest gymnast, Simone Biles. So the briefs in this situation included a debate between prosecutors and defense attorneys over whether Biles Thomas might have acted in self-defense during the shooting the legal paperwork included a request from Biles Thomas's attorney to instruct the jury on self-defense and tell them that they could find that that they could find that Biles Thomas committed the shooting but was acting in, in defense of his cousin. So the judge, Joan Sinnenberg, denied that motion. And the um, the attorney told jurors instead during closing arguments that Biles Thomas did not have a gun at the party. So Sinnenberg on Monday afternoon brought the jury into the courtroom and asked if the information that they read in those briefs 
influence their decision. And all of them said yes. <laughs> so there you have it. The judge declared a mistrial. No one can no one can say how the briefs got mixed in with the trial evidence. The defense lawyers have said they've only been using electronic copies and never even printed them out. And the prosecutors are under a gag order and haven't said anything about it. So they're set to begin picking a new jury on Wednesday and starting from scratch. Seems like this is a pretty weak case overall, too. It's all based on uh, circumstantial evidence. There's nothing right. that actually places it. So I'm, um, I, I wondered, is this prosecutorial sabotage because they were going to lose? I, I don't know. It's just some that's a lot. Uh, you know, think about it. All those jurors gave up three weeks of their time, two weeks of their time. The judge's salary, the prosecutor's salary, the defense attorney's time all wasted all for nothing right. because of a, a bonehead mistake. So I, I hope we at least find out how it happened in the end. Mm -hmm. you're, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Cedar Point coping with its inability to find workers this summer? And what is it paying to attract more? Laura Johnston, you get this question because I think you're going to go out there and you may find some long lines. I might. I might be filing a story about uh, how awful it was. But uh, they're closing Tuesdays and Wednesdays in June because they don't have enough staff. And on their opening weekends, they got a lot of complaints about those long lines, the closed food stands and the rides. So to try to get more workers, they're offering $20 an hour. That's double what they were offering last year. They're offering a $500 signing bonus for new and returning workers. And, and you can stay there all summer, but they have dorms that, that workers can stay in. But the, the one problem is that they can't get international workers because of the J-1 visa exchange pro program, which typically attracts these foreign students, was shut down. Normally, they hire about 1,600 workers from overseas. That's a quarter of the workforce. And that's just been clogged up, that pipeline. And obviously, you've got all of the coronavirus issues from other countries. So uh, yeah, we might be in for a long summer at Cedar Point. Well, and our story said there was social media from last weekend or the weekend before, mm -hmm. I can't remember which, where people were in agonizingly long lines to get food and things because they just don't have the workers to to serve people. And that, that make, I mean, if you're paying all that money to go out there and have a good time and you're standing in hot summer lines waiting to get, you know, your meager French fries, that's not going to be a pleasant, pleasant way. So we'll wait and see what your experience was to find out just how things are going. I think, I think this, this should be the summer that they let people bring their own food to Cedar Point. Don't you think? Come on, spend the rules, Cedar Point. <laughs> yeah, that actually would be a wise way to avoid some right. of the the anger they're going to face. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. It escaped much notice, but we saw an announcement last week about July 4th fireworks in Cleveland. What is it, and will people attend? Laura Johnston, will this be the grand reopening of society? Yeah, you know, Downtown Cleveland Alliance is having their Light Up the Lake fireworks for the first time since 2019. This actually took a little work to track down. You'd think there'd be a big fanfare with, you know, a press conference or at least a press release. But, you know, we had our City Hall reporter Bob Higgs check on permits and then uh, reporter Mark Bona got Downtown Cleveland Alliance on the phone. So it is happening July 4th on the door dock north of Brown Stadium. You can come bring your blanket set up anywhere with a good view. Obviously, the CDC and the state of Ohio tells you you don't have to worry so much about social distancing anymore. So I think people will come and it pains me to say this on this podcast, Chris, but I think you are right. And it will be the grand reopening of, uh, of America. Use the symbolism of Independence Day and really do it up. I started saying it last November. I so, know. So Leila <laughs> Tassi, you have three young children that can't be vaccinated. 
Would you take them to something like this or would you have reservations about being in a big crowd? Um, I don't know. I think we would probably stay local and, uh, you know, find our find our spot on the lawn that's separate from others. I think that's how we would do it. You would find some remote place and not yeah. be down in the big yeah. crowd down right. in the downtown yeah. area. Yeah, that's what I wonder is whether people will figure, you know, I'm really glad to see the fireworks. It's time to see the fireworks get back to normal. But I don't want to sit elbow to elbow, blanket sure. to blanket with throngs of people who are not wearing masks. Well, and that's the good thing about these fireworks is it's not like some small community park that you have to go to to be able to see them. You'll be able to see them from far. And a lot of people, if, they ha- if they're lucky enough to have boats, go out on the lake. And that's like the ultimate in social distancing, right? But you should be able to see them anywhere downtown. I mean, you could be in your car way out by our building on, on 18th and Superior and be able to see them. So I think there's plenty of space if you want to stay a little distance, but still see the big booms. There's no activity that you don't go to, Laura Johnson. Will you go? <laughs> you know what? I'm such, I have not taken my kids to fireworks. Uh, I think we've done it once only because it's like, oh my God, they're not going to start till like 1030. I am a big proponent of like, let's have New Year's Eve fireworks at six o'clock. Why do we have to stay out till midnight to go see fireworks? Because yeah. it has to be dark. <laughs> I know. Well, I understand that. I'm just saying we should change the fireworks holiday to New Year's Eve. Oh, I That's get cool. it. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you have it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right. That was that was an interesting set of discussions, really playing on your personal lives for the news discussion. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 